Hello, I'm Dwayne Mancini and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. On March 1st, we will be creating a new channel for MedTech Money. So if you are a fan of the podcast, please search Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to your favorite Project MedTech channels. In this episode, our host Giovanni Loricella and our guest Daniel Hawkins from Avail Med Systems discuss his $100 million raise, his experience at Intuitive Surgical and what it was like to be employee number six, his exit of one company to Johnson & Johnson, his experience in raising money from Sofanova, his promise he made to investors, he discusses his strategy around IP and his companies, how he raised $100 million over Zoom, his relationship with Fred Mall, advice for startup companies, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Daniel Hawkins. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. Daniel, welcome to the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. I am very excited to have this conversation. We've known each other for years at this point, and I want to get all this historical stories of your serial entrepreneurship in med tech. And before we get into that, the reason why this podcast exists is I've talked to med tech entrepreneurs and investors around the world, and I've discovered that there's no silver bullet or specific formula or magic about how to raise or invest capital in med tech. So my goal here is to extract insights to demystify the process and also help those who can benefit from the information now and also for future generations of medtech innovators. So this audience listening in right now is likely a mixture of novices and experts. However, what I'd like to do is share your stories and advice with what I imagine that first time founder or CEO and has no clue on what lies ahead of them on their journey of raising capital. And so I thought the best place to start is learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And the reason why you and I are here today is a lot of reasons, but I, I definitely want to get the stories of Avail Med Systems, the $100 million Series B that you raised, in addition to you being a serial med tech, health tech entrepreneur at this point. And so we can have those entrepreneurs listening in right now, understand truly what it means to be an entrepreneur and also what you have to go through to raise $100 million and also all the rounds that you've raised previously. Yep. So. Before we get into your background, and uh, no one can introduce themselves better than themselves, so I'll let you do that in a minute, but I have a few open-ended questions that I'd like to ask you first to get warmed up here. So first one, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a medtech startup? Why or why not? Or would you add anything else to that? You know, I would. And first, thanks very much uh, for the chance to be here today. It's great to chat with you again. Uh, I, I would say that people and money are, in fact, the lifeblood. Of course, you need great technology. You need to go after great markets. But the reality is ideas cannot come to fruition unless you have not only money, but what you'll, uh, you'll come to hear from me in almost a mantra format, uh, smart and helpful money. Uh, but, you know, I, I would say money and people are, in fact, the lifeblood. So I totally agree with that. And I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with this next question here uh, because there's various ways you can take it and I'll let you run with it. But this notion of luck, people say you make your own luck. Sometimes 
things just happen that you can't explain. But this notion of luck in med tech in this very complex regulated um, ecosystem and, and industry that we play in, do you believe in luck and how much does luck play into success for med tech? So I believe that luck shows up in the form of market timing, perhaps capital raise economic timing is how luck shows up. Uh, luck otherwise, you make it. In my view, you really make it. Um, it comes from doing the right disciplined work on the front end. It comes from identifying your needs properly. It comes from designing your product properly. It comes from uh, manager intellectual property in, a, in an appropriate fashion. It comes from choosing the right investors and selecting the right milestones. It looks like luck from the outside. Uh, it really has nothing to do with it. Uh, of course, from the standpoint of, of avail, we had some things related to the pandemic that some might call luck. I would call it timing that turned out to be fortunate for a company when it is terrible for, for uh, uh, humankind, if you will. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't subscribe too, too much into that sort of notion of I drew a lottery ticket. So therefore, uh, I, think you, I think you make your own luck more than anything else. And I'm going to use this word serial entrepreneur. I don't get to use it very often in my podcast. So I'm, I'm very glad to be able to use it today because there's going to be some juicy stories behind it. Um, but if you knew what you know now about being a med tech, parentheses, serial entrepreneur, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or, or what would you do differently? So um, a, a number of different questions in there and therefore a number of different answers, right? Uh, would I do it all over again in a hot minute? Um, there's nothing better than doing something that you love. I, I, I geek out a bit, if you will, on, on med tech. Uh, I love technology. I love how things work. Um, but coming out of business school in 1993 at the dawn of the internet, I could not imagine doing what some of my colleagues were passionate about. They're passionate about their stuff. I'm passionate about mine. Um, I should say classmates. Um, I have classmates that went off to be, you know, early stages in PeopleSoft and Yahoo and founders of e-greetings. And that's great. It turned them up. That wasn't my thing. My thing was I wanted to be involved in something that uh, impacted people. Um, I'm the son of a physician. And I watched my dad throughout my entire childhood, you know, go through days where he was treating patients one at a time. And for me, I wanted to do the same, but I wanted to do Instead of one to one, I wanted to do one to thousands, one to tens of thousands, one to millions. That's that's more what I was interested in. So would I do it again in a hot minute? And uh, as as uh, as as those who know me well know, uh, the brain never stops. There's always something else I'm trying to think of, and I'll watch a procedure and I'll think, well, why aren't you doing it this way? There's another way to do that. And if you did it that way, the outcomes would be better. And uh, that stuff is always running through my head. So absolutely, I would do it again. What would I do differently? That's a different question. There's some stuff in that. So how deeply you want me to unpack that? <laughs> well, if you, if you jumped in with two feet and you love what you do, I mean, I'm sure you could always do things differently if you gave time back to yourself and figured it out knowing what you know. But it sounds yeah. like you're right in the middle of what you love doing and you, yes. you fulfilled your dream, which is good. Absolutely. Um, I, I was thinking specifically with you on how I either wanted to ask this being a longer question and, and leading you somewhere, but I figured I'm just going to give you the dry version and let you run with it. Um, is it glamorous being a med tech CEO? <laughs> 
from the outside. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's a, um, one of my co-founders of, of Shockwave is a serial entrepreneur from the engineering side. And he had a chance to fill the CEO chair a couple of times. And he said something to me that, that made me laugh at the same time as it made me sort of lean back a little bit in, in, in semi-shock. Um, but now I know what he meant. He said, anybody who wants to be a med tech CEO just hasn't been one yet. Uh, this is hard stuff. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, one needs to understand that. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's intense. It's, uh, it's risky. It's um, demanding. Uh, multi-parallel. Relentless. And at the end of the day, the FDA might say, yeah, I don't think so. And uh, you don't find that out for years later. In some respects, you're mixing a, a recipe for a great cake and you don't actually get to bake it until years later. And you have no idea what it's going to taste like when it comes out, right? So it, it might turn out it's an absolute disaster and everybody decides they wanted a chocolate cake when you made a vanilla one and now you're stuck, right? The whole market might have moved. So um, it's... it's uh, it's the hardest job outside of parenting, I'll say. It's the hardest job with the greatest reward you could imagine. And I wanna tie the last question and that one in, in together. And I don't wanna let go what was recently released a month ago and, and run with it however short or long you want. But um, congratulations first and foremost, but you were honored by Goldman Sachs for the entrepreneurship of 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs of 2021. So uh, glamor comes in various forms, um, but where did that come from? What's that all about? Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and uh, it, it really was an honor. Uh, I was humbled by it. Uh, you know, they, they, in fact, did that in, I believe it was 2015 relative to Shockwave. And, and, and they, they, uh, they recognized, again, some contributions to healthcare uh, and entrepreneurship with Avail. What that really is, more than anything, is a, uh, a recognition of a bold vision that a company has taken, and, and I'll say as the founder of the company I have taken, uh, to try to put an impact on an industry. Uh, that that uh, uh, recognition is really uh, spans many industries. It'll span everything from consumer products to shipping to uh, digital security and whatnot, and all the way into healthcare. And, and for them to recognize what we're doing at Avail to change healthcare and the boldness of that vision uh, is, is it's really humbling, frankly. Um, when, you, when you tie that back to uh, the passion that one needs to have as a CEO, uh, as a founder, it is, uh, they're, they're inextricably linked. I don't know how else to put it. Uh, you know, the way, the way I describe it to, uh, to folks who ask me, how can you do this? It's actually more a question for me. How can I not? Um, it, you know, it's it's impossible not to want to do this because, as I uh, as I described to uh, uh, fellow founder friends and uh, and and to colleagues, if there's something that can be done to move the needle, and we have the capability, we have the responsibility to move the needle. And as as medtech entrepreneurs, that's that's literally how I look at it. Uh, if you see a way to improve patient care and you don't do anything about it, you're shirking a responsibility. And for it to be recognized as a, uh, 
uh, as a, a one of 100 uh, most intriguing entrepreneurs, a disruptive, uh, and to have it happen again is, is humbling. Um, but to be recognized that way, I was in uh, I was in some pretty pretty rare and interesting company. I will say that it was it was uh, quite an honor and quite an event they held around that. So we're going to learn very quickly about your actual background when you get into it. But I just wanted to stick on this whole idea of, of glamour, but also this DNA of a serial entrepreneur. And a lot of people will scratch their heads be, because they ask why. You know, th this whole notion of startups and building startups and selling them off for hundreds of millions and everyone's goal, maybe not everyone's, but a lot of people's goal is, oh, let's make a bunch of money and then I can finally go get daiquiris and sit on the beach for the rest of my life. And you just do it one time. <laughs> And, and I have a very good friend who uh, is actually over in Israel. And in 2016, he sold off a company um, and it was for roughly around 700 million. And it was a big celebration, you know, 30 seconds of champagne. And then he went right back to work the next day on his next company. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I was a lot younger then too. So I was like, man, you just, you just made a bunch of money. You worked your ass off for years. I watched yep. you do it. Um, yep. sleepless nights, bags under your eyes, traveling from continent to continent in a week sometimes. Yep. Um, yep. And you finally got the victory that you were working for. And then you, you didn't even take a year off or you didn't go buy yourself a brand new pair of shoes or a car or whatever. You just went right back to it. Why? Yep. What, what makes you, <laughs> that guy and other serial entrepreneurs different from the rest? Like, why aren't you on a beach somewhere right now? So uh, I'm, I'm laughing because while I can imagine being on a beach, by the time I get to day 12, I'm kind of going, yeah, uh, uh. <laughs> time to go, time to go, time to go. Um, you know, I, uh, I keep a lab book. I still draw stuff in it. Um, I think about things. It hits the page. And at some point, other one of those might be another company. Uh, it's it, for me, at least. It is, um, it is a near pathologic need uh, to make things better. It, that's just how it is. I, it's just, if there's, if I see it, uh, I have to make it. I, 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 it's just a passion. And, you know, um, I, I congratulate your friend for waiting until there was an exit. I actually left Shockwave in 2017. It went public in 2019. I even left before the exit. I was, I was, running like crazy for multiple years. And in 2016, I traveled a quarter of a million miles for Shockwave. Wow. Right. In the air, a quarter of a million. And in 2017, I said, you know what? Yeah, there's a problem I have to solve. So <laughs> I'm going to go I'm gonna work on that one. Uh, so I think I have it a little worse than your friend. But, um, you know, for me, it is uh, it's, it's really around just the need to make a contribution and a feeling as though if you're not making a contribution and you can, you're 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 uh, you're leaning back from a responsibility. And if I may, I'm actually going to take a moment to step slightly out of med tech for a second. In the vein of all of that, while I'm doing what I'm doing, um, you know, my uh, my wife and sons and I were going across Golden Gate Bridge um, for a a march around around the time period of George, George Floyd's murder. And um, it occurred to me that there's nothing emblematic that unifies the whole group. There's no live strong bracelet of this, this issue, this movement, this need for equality. 
and I, I, I it couldn't, it, I couldn't tolerate it. Uh, I just needed to do something about it. So I started chatting with some people that I know, some athletes, athletes, former athletes, former football players. We're tilting up an effort right now to do exactly that. Uh, and we're going to donate all the proceeds from it to causes that support equality and opportunity for African-Americans. It's one of these deals where if you have opportunity to do something and capability to do something to move the needle, you have to do it. And for me, that's what drives me. And, and uh, that's an example even out of MedTech. Uh, we just simply have to do it. Well, kudos on that initiative and, and thank you for sharing that story. And, and before we go to the next question, I just want to, no one can see this who's listening in right now, but I get made fun of all the time because 20 years later, I actually have a Livestrong bracelet. <laughs> as <you> say. There <laughs> you go. I've worn a Livestrong bracelet forever. So I'm all about the cause. Um, going back to it, last open-ended question before we get into your background. I know this has been a long intro. Um, what does the name of your company avail med systems mean? I mean, you've been through this exercise several times of starting companies before, but there's usually a story or history behind a name. How did you come yeah. up with avail med systems? So that goes to the why I started it. Um, so the fundamental reason I started the company is because throughout the preceding 24 years in med tech, one of the things I was really struck by is that uh, if you will, all the good stuff happens in the procedure rooms. Uh, medical education is 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 conducted procedure room. Expertise from one physician to another happens in a procedure room. New products are introduced in a procedure room. Medical device companies send sales reps into rooms to support a physician using a new technology in a procedure room. All of that requires people to be in the room. And uh, because of that, there are limitations to how well they can do that when they frankly physically need to be somewhere else. And what I came to understand throughout all of my years doing this and more, more than ever while I was running Shockwave is that you, you miss opportunities to launch a product, to medically educate, to benefit a patient by being in the room and providing support that a a, uh, a surgeon needs for, for his or her optimal success in running a procedure, uh, you miss those opportunities by not being in the room. So I said, well, you know what? I'm done with this. This needs to get fixed. And the technology's here. So I'm going to start a company to enable people who could be in the room providing benefit to the physician in the room, but can't physically be there. I'm just going to create a company to do it. So damn it, I'm going to leave Shockwave. And I'm going to go off and do that. Um, the word that I just used a moment ago, to benefit from, if you were to look in the dictionary under the word avail, you will see to benefit from. Mm. And avail is also short for available. So it is somebody who's available outside of the procedure room who is providing expertise to the benefit of somebody in the procedure room. So that's how I came up with the name. I love that. So lo and behold, the man behind the voice at this point, we've jumped in and out of the topic of history as well as now what Avail Med Systems is, but I just want to get concrete on both of them and I'll let you run with both. So Daniel Hawkins, serial entrepreneur in med tech, health tech, who are you? Where do you come from? How have you built your life academically, professionally to now be the CEO and founder of Avail Med Systems? And when you get there, if you want to take a few moments to deeper dive into Avail of, of what you guys have accomplished, 
then let's understand what that technology and company does. But those two questions, who are you and what are you building? Absolutely. So when we started kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, b- born and raised in Philadelphia, uh, son of a physician. You know, we uh, the first house we lived in uh, were floors two and three above his office. This was true family care. That's just how it was. Um, you know, my, uh, uh, my dad is uh, African-American. He was one of the first graduates of his, his um, med school who, who was a person of color. He couldn't hang a shingle. Uh, sorry, he couldn't go into a, uh, a hospital practice because of the color of his skin. So he hung a shingle instead. And he decided to do it uh, initially in the neighborhood we lived in. And then we moved out of that neighborhood and he decided instead to go into the toughest, most underprivileged neighborhood in all of Philadelphia. Uh, and he medical center there. He took three brownstones and ripped out the walls and created a multi-specialty medical center in a pocket of the city where you needed to take three buses to get to a hospital. And uh, he had dentistry, podiatry, pharmacy, you know, uh, chiropractic. It, it, was, it was fantastic, all in one facility. He was known as Doc. Okay, so I grew up with that. I grew up with entrepreneurial service, right, to be of service. Uh, fascinated with science, uh, entrepreneurial household. Um, at 13, instead of dragging holly clippings to the woods to get rid of them, I asked my, my uh, dad if I can go door to door, Girl Scout cookie style, and sell them around the holidays, which I did. Right. So I had a small bunch for three bucks and then there was a five dollar bunch. And then I, I had a wreath for 11 bucks and I sat there with gloves on and I wove the holly around this little metal wreath. I bought at a garden store and then we delivered them and it was a blast. I was like, oh, my goodness, where's all this money coming from? It was really, really fun. So I got hooked. Undergrad was Wharton, uh, University of Pennsylvania. And timing wise, I graduated um, in the in the mid 80s. So I spent uh, a couple of years in, sorry, in the late 80s, I spent a couple of years in Manhattan, uh, Wall Street style in the late 80s, early 90s. This is, um, for those who are students of of leverage buyouts, this is RGR Nabisco, barbarians at the gate kind of timeframe. And, you know, uh, guys like me were flexing in, in, in expensive suits and talking about takeovers and all this stuff. And, I, uh, I had this opportunity at 21 to be on a board of directors. Let me just pause there. At 21 on a board of directors. <laughs> and I'm sitting in this meeting and I'm realizing, wait a minute. I don't want to be on this side of the table. I want to be on the other side. I want to be in the entrepreneurial side. This Wall Street stuff is fine. And I can make an absolutely obnoxious amount of money doing it. But I want to be on the other side. And while I was at that firm, the deals that I always gravitated towards were the ones that I did with Dr. Mitchell Blatt because they were healthcare deals. I always found myself magnetically attracted to the healthcare deals. Business school um, at, uh, at Stanford, found my love of Northern California there. And um, it's a hotbed. There are three hotbeds of med tech uh, in the United States, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, Minneapolis, and Boston. 
I wasn't going to move to Minneapolis. No discredit intended, but for me, it's not an environment I wanted to. I wanted to, to live in. The weather is a little too harsh for for me, and the people from Minneapolis will laugh at me, and I I deserve being laughed at. Um, and uh, and Boston was more biotech than medtech, and frankly, I love Silicon Valley, so I ended up here. Uh, and I started with a large company because, candidly, I couldn't get into a small one. <laughs> right, I couldn't get into what I wanted, which was a startup. 93, I started in angioplasty for a division of Eli Lilly that became Guidance and ultimately became Abbott Vascular. So some of the people I worked with, you know, back in 1993 are now uh, senior, senior leaders over at Abbott Vascular. Um, and then from there, I just got the entrepreneurial bug. I wanted to go super early stage. Uh, Fred Mall, the founder of Intuitive Surgical, uh, got introduced to me by a mutual friend who was a venture capitalist. And I ended up being one of the earliest employees at Intuitive Surgical. Um, so yeah, I was, I was, I was number six. Um, Fred and I and a couple of guys um, were primarily the engine behind setting the specs on the Da Vinci robot. Um, and you know, ultimately, the there were teen of us that went over to uh, Belgium, Dundermonde, Belgium. I'll never forget it. Lonnie Smith, who was the then CEO. Uh, Fred Mall, of course, the current CEO, Gary Goodhart. Uh, Gary was uh, one of the leaders in engineering. Uh, a guy called Dave Rosa, who's now a very senior leader over at Intuitive. He was a clinical engineer at the time and a number of other folks that I've, some of whom I think are still there. And we did the world's first uh, robotics procedures there. And this is with a system that was towers of hardware and guys running geary stuff and you know Dave Rosa bless his heart was at the table and uh scrubbed and you know handing instruments over and all that sort of stuff and we got our first five procedures done um I have the somewhat dubious distinction uh and I'll call it an honor of actually selling the first da Vinci robot um to a heart hospital in Germany and then um you know, I, uh, I was part of a, a small group, led a small group to take that first closed chest bypass procedure from 11 hours down to 45 minutes. Um, you know, it's just, if you're, if you're passionate about what you do, you just keep on digging in and rolling and moving. And uh, I learned a lot from Fred, Fred Mall during that whole process, an extraordinary amount. Uh, he's an absolutely brilliant medical device entrepreneur and Many people don't know this, but he's the inventor of the safety trocar. Um, so what he created and sold to Leon Hirsch over at US Surgical, launched minimally invasive uh, gallbladder removals and launched that whole industry. Um, and I kept that relationship going, of course. And from there, I ended up going even earlier stage. Um, I was involved in biotech for a little while with the founder of Amgen. Um, I had my first uh, first company I needed to close the doors on was that one because we were uh, trying to raise our Series B the December after 9-11. Mm. So that didn't work very well, right? So we had to, we had to close the doors. And, you know, uh, I'll tell you, I forced myself to be the guy that turned the lights off, pulled the door closed, dropped the keys in the leasing agent's hand because I never wanted to feel that again. I, I wanted to make sure it was baked in 
So I baked it in. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then from, uh, from Maryland, I ended up uh, doing some local consulting because there's no med tech in Maryland at all. That's where we were doing it. And uh, we moved from the Bay Area to Maryland for that. Uh, and while there, I ended up doing some consulting um, for a brief time while I was trying to frankly figure out where I was going to go. Um, and, you know, this turned out to supposed to be three months, turned out to be two years. Uh, with that team, we launched a company that went public and was acquired by um, Entronic in the ENT space. Then we launched another one um, that, uh, that was involved in uh, obesity, gastric stimulation for obesity. And then something really transformational happened. I was asked by three arch partners and prospect, sorry, and Fraser Healthcare, two uh, very, very uh, well-established and, and, and terrific venture firms at the time to join a couple entrepreneurs in Seattle to do something that I didn't even know existed. And this was, this was like candy in a barrel for me. They gave us $2 million and said, go figure out something worth doing. Literally, that was the mission. Here's 2 million bucks and come up with a market that's interesting and a device that's interesting to serve that market. And if we agree with you, we'll shovel over a bunch of money for you to start the company. So that was our mission. That must have been a dream come true for you. Oh, it was awesome. Oh, <laughs> it was fantastic. What an opportunity. It was absolutely fantastic. So the guys I ended up connecting, uh, a guy called Cliff, Cliff Alfredness, and then a guy called John Adams, both of them engineers. These are guys that actually worked with Earl Bakken in the early days of Medtronic. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're uh, uh, in the later stages of their career at the time and uh, brilliant, both of them in, 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 in different ways, which was fantastic for me. I didn't know how to invent diddly squat before I met those guys. I didn't even know, I barely knew anything about patents. And I went to school on them. Um, they showed me how to invent things. And collectively, one of those guys came up with a primary idea, but collectively, we invented an insulin delivery device and started a company called Calibra Medical. It was a skin-worn mechanical patch pump. Uh, that was supposed to stay in Seattle, but it didn't because we found a CEO that was in the Bay Area, so we moved the company. The problem is, I didn't want to move. <laughs> I didn't have any interest in moving. So uh, I was in this odd position of being a founder of a company that I needed to kick out of the nest and I needed to stay in the nest. That was tough, right? Because Seattle's not known for spawning 50 med tech companies a year, right? Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what I was going to be doing, but it was right for the company. So we did it. That company subsequently was acquired by J&J. And after a number of years, they divested it and the assets of that, the IP and, and all the designs and everything were acquired by a company called Secure. Secure then raised a little, I think around $100 million and they're launching the device right now. It's called the Simplicity. So I'm thrilled to see it going to the market, right? That's, uh, that's an entrepreneur's reward that something goes to the market. Um, I will say that in the, in the learning column, uh, Despite being a founder at the end of that, uh, I, I was able possibly to afford a used Harley after the acquisition by J&J &J, um, <laughs> because some things were not done the way they should have been done with respect to financing of the company and milestones and whatnot. I learned a lot. That informed my next one. So after that, after Calibra was moved to the Bay Area, 
uh, I went back to three arch partners and said, I, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but I want to do this again. And they looked at me and said, nobody ever wants to do this twice. <laughs> what are you talking about? Nobody does this twice. I, I wanted to do it again. Um, Prospect Venture Partners joined me. Both of those firms are no longer uh, in operation, but um, Prospect Ventures and Three Arts together gave another 2 million bucks to me and to John Adams. Cliff wasn't involved in this one. And we started hunting around again. And that's where, uh, recall, they taught me how to invent, right? So that's where I, I uh, came up with the idea for what became Shockwave Medical. Um, I realized that if you brought two technologies together, that you could do something transformational for cardiovascular medicine. And I learned that because of some things that John Adams told me. And again, being technically minded is the way I would probably put it. Um, I listened to a lot of the history of his work in the past with defibrillators and errors with defibrillators and whatnot. It taught him about this thing he had to learn about called lithotripsy. And that led me to what became ultimately Shockwave Medical. And that became number six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 of what are now 165 patents that uh, I've been involved with and filed uh, over time across a full range of medical technologies. Uh, the part that most people don't know is that was 2007 that we came up with that, that idea. My first invention of it was late 2007. We tried mightily to get funding in 2008. Uh, the venture community didn't, didn't say, they just thought, mm, not so much. For the entrepreneurs out there, if you have conviction and you've called your own bull and you've, and you've really done your work, I'm here to tell you, stick to it, stick hard to it. So here's my version of sticking hard to it. Uh, we went to the venture folks and said, uh, meaning prospect and, and three arch, here's the idea, we wanna fund it. They said, ah, um, we're not really funding anything early stage right now. Market timing, remember we talked about luck. Okay, this was bad luck, right? So market timing, it was 2009, walking up to 2009, 2008, we were trying to do that. So this was housing crisis timing. There was no money going into early stage. And on top of that, they said, we think this is kind of niche. We don't think this is a whole company. Okay, all right. Um, if that's how you feel, I'll take my chips and go home, that's fine. But before I do, I wanna buy the IP. That's what I told them. I wanna buy the IP. So I took some of my kids' college fund and I bought the IP. And then I told my wife, <laughs> so it was sort of the wrong order. Um, <laughs> I would not recommend that, generally speaking, bad idea. Um, and then I went off and did something else for a couple of years. Um, nights, weekends, sometimes late at night, pretty much every weekend. Um, we kind of back burner cooked that. Me, John, a guy called Todd Brenton, uh, we in the back burner kind of cooked it. I was doing something else and I called Fred Mullen and I said, Fred, uh, I wanna show you what I've been working on. And he said, is it that lithotripsy thing? I said, yeah, it is. What do you, tell me about that again. I described it and he said, are you kidding me? Wow. He was doing Hanson Medical at the time. And for those not familiar, it's a vascular oriented robot. And he was running into problems with calcium in the leg. And I said, Fred, that's what I've been doing. We can solve that. He saw it and he led what became $4 million Series A. 
I left what I was doing and took the hat of CEO for the first time. So wow. it was uh, it was an interesting time period, to wow. say the least. Yeah. Um, so from there, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was about to say, and there's one more to go. I, that's yeah, the entrepreneur. Go, so. We can't stop there. <laughs> no, I can't stop there. We keep going. Um, so from there, um, the history of that was, uh, uh, I'll describe it as seemingly from the outside up and to the right. It wasn't. Uh, none of it ever is. It's, it's, you know, creating new companies is sloppy and messy. So if you're in the middle of it as a first timer and you feel like, oh my God, this is so easy and I don't feel like I know what I'm doing and everybody else seems to be going so smoothly. Let me assure you, the duck off of the water is moving slowly and smoothly. The feet underneath are going nuts, right? I mean, they're absolutely going nuts trying to propel the duck forward. That is, that is what it is to be a, a med tech uh, a founder, CEO, entrepreneur. That's just how it, how it works. Interestingly, um, Fred asked me before putting, uh, putting his uh, uh, support behind what we were doing, how much do you need to get to first in man? In other words, you got to prove it. That's every, every MedTech entrepreneur knows you got to prove it, right? So well, how much do you need? I said, Fred, for lots of reasons that I won't bother to go into here, a million and a half. That's nothing, by the way. I mean, it's not a lot of money to get to first man, right? It's nothing. And he said, wow, okay, that's great. I said, but Fred, I need 4 million. And he said, why? Why do you need 4 million? I said, Fred, in order to get to first in man, I need to have excellent engineers. Going back to your comment of people and money, okay, I need excellent engineers. And if I don't have excellent engineers, I'm not going to get there. But to attract excellent engineers, they need to know that I'm going to be here more than a million and a half worth. And he said, okay, I get that. But what happens if it doesn't work? And I said, Fred, you've known me a long time. I'm not going to push a boulder up Everest. It's not going to happen. So I will call my own baby ugly as hell if it doesn't work. And what I'll do, I can't put this in paper because you know it's not going to play well with investors and the whole thing. But I promise you, you and me, we know each other. I will shut it down. If after first and man, we don't get a very clear forward signal, I'll shut it down. I ask for four months of, of retention pay for each of the engineers. I'll take two. And then from there, all the money goes back to investors. He said, well, I think it ought to be six for them and six for you. And I said, no, not six for me because that'll put too much weight on it. Give me three, give them six, that's fine. And th that's how we're gonna do. And that's how we did it. That's how we got launched. Okay, so from there, it was all about the mission of getting it done. Um, series A was 4 million and A1 was two and a half. Our first institutional round, Amazingly, I couldn't find anybody in the United States that was uh, a combination of the money I wanted from the people I wanted with the vision that I was interested in. And the, uh, the place I found that um, was in Paris with Antoine Papernick over at Sophie Novo Partners. Amazing. He invested out of a $300 million fund and led around um, in, uh, in Shockwave and uh, that promise. And from there, we raised an incredible amount of money at increasing valuations that were all material. I'm very, very happy to say from seed money through every stage along the way, every investor made money. That should be a goal for every entrepreneur that's out there that allows you to be a serial entrepreneur, by the way, when everybody along the way makes money. 
Uh, I just checked in with Antoine days ago. Uh, maybe last, maybe it was earlier last week. And I said, Antoine, I forgot to ask you. I can't believe I forgot to ask you, but I forgot to ask you. I promised you the day that you said you're going to do the deal that I was going to return your fund, the whole fund on one deal. I promised you that. Did we do it? And he said, yeah, you did. (laughs) (laughs) He said, yeah, you did. In fact, it was a return and a half on the fund. And if I wasn't so impatient in selling shares, you would have returned two and a half to three times the fund. Oh so that, that, that was, that was awesome. That is awesome. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, you know, from there I got, uh, I got impatient with something that needed to be fixed and that's how I ended up starting a veil. And what did we do to start that? Uh, seed money from me, um, Fred Mall <laughs> again, and a guy called Jay Watkins, who's on my, uh, on my board at Shockwave and he's on my board now at a veil and, and a handful of other folks. And um, that then led to uh, a series A, a handful of months later, beginning of 18, May of 18, actually, um, from Lux Capital was the lead. So first and foremost, you're an amazing storyteller because anyone who's listening in on there, there's usually, I have to tease out questions and questions to get all the information and nuggets that you just shared. So um, I was listening and drooling to this entrepreneurial story. <laughs> I mean, it was fascinating and, and we've known each other for years and I didn't even know a 10th of what you just shared about your background. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so a few things that I want to cover and just jump into now, because what I walked away from, from that story is, and those entrepreneurs who are likely paying attention to that amazing serial entrepreneurial story, once you get going and once you create a name for yourself, does it become easier to raise money after that? I mean, you brought up the name Fred Mole a few times, right? It seems like, and I, I don't mean this in the pejorative sense, but it seems like there's a bunch of cronies that hang out with each other. It's a bunch of tight network people. And once you get some successes and you know people, it, it's, not the, it's not like you jump now to your next startup and you're in front of an Excel spreadsheet and Googling medtech or medtech investors and, oh, let me send my executive summary to that one and hopefully they'll answer me and get back to me. It's a lot more of a, I hear like your, 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 your way of raising capital is almost like skating on ice, like a, like a Russian figure skater. It just seems beautiful. It just seems kind of very natural as opposed to like the very grinding effort that first time entrepreneurs likely have to go through. So I, I want to I hear your thoughts on that, which will lead to that 100 million in avail. But I think with the remainder of the time here, because you are that amazing storyteller, if I give you some Gatling gun questions, I'll just let you run again. So, okay. <laughs> uh, so what I really want to cover is the difference between raising capital for a, a hardware style, physical medical device like a shockwave versus avail med systems, quote unquote, telemedicine right? Yep. And that difference of med tech, health tech, high tech, what investors are playing in there, what ones aren't, was that a new learning lesson for you in those various styles of investors? That's one thing and, and tied to the next one, which is what we just talked about. Is having friends making raising capital easier? Great. Yeah, there's, uh, there's a bunch there and I, uh, uh, go for it. On me, I'll just kind of roll. Go for it. So, <laughs> So um, I'm going to take the uh, uh, the second one first. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. So it's just easier. Now, is it easy? No. No, it's not. But it's easier. 
And uh, I got a piece of advice very, very early on when I was considering doing my own thing. Don't go into a venture capital firm cold because it's not going to go nearly as well as if you get a warm introduction by somebody. And I'm going to go a little step farther and I'm going to say facilitated by somebody. Okay. So um, from that perspective, I learned about Antoine Papernick and Sophie Nova from somebody who knew somebody who knew him. And that introduction came in warm. So when I met with him, it was already, the spring was a little bit. Now, to be clear, that gets you to the other side of the door. Now, what you do on the other side of the door, that's kind of up to you, right? But that gets you a, 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 an engaged audience on the other side of the door. Um, so that is absolutely true. I also noticed that when I go from Shockwave to Avail. Right, so Shockwave, uh, by all appearances, was not the niche that everybody thought it was in 2008 when I couldn't raise any money. It was not the niche that the people who were looking at it in past thought it was in 2011 when I was trying to raise money and ultimately ended up uh, doing something with Fred. Uh, it was not the niche that everybody thought it was a couple of years later when I was trying to raise money and found Antoine. It was a very different story with a lot of momentum and highly credible investors along the way that um, you didn't ask about this, but I feel compelled to share one of the reasons why there was so much momentum around the company. Yes, we were nailing it clinically. We were nailing it engineering wise. We blanketed with IP. We had 63 patents filed globally in, in every major market we had uh, foundational IP. Strategically, most of it was initially done in private name so that nobody could believe that it was all aggregated around a company. So we did pockets of private name. Then we brought it all together because we didn't want anybody knowing what we were doing. Um, while running it, I spent time actually asking engineers, I want you to shut off your phone. We're going to go into this room and we're going to order food because we're going to stay here until we break our own patent. We're going to figure out a way around our own stuff. And we kept doing that and finding ways around it. I've done the same thing at Avail. We try to find where we go, where's the puck going to be in five years. We jump to that place and drop IP all over it. Then we think there's a possibility where the puck will be in five years. We drop IP all over that. So we've done the exact same thing. Um, as I started to build Shockwave, we started to get more and more highly credible, but different investors, early stage investors like, like Sophie Nova was almost exclusively at that time. Right now they have later stage funds, but at that time they only had early stage or mostly uh, gave way and the series B to crossover funds, fund invest in private companies prior to them going public. And I strategically when, when a fund asked for 20 million position in a round that was only supposed to be 25, but we pushed it to, it was either 40 or 45. I said, yeah, we don't have room for that. I'm sorry. The most we can do is seven. I did that on purpose. I did it because you need to underfeed your investors and put folks with very deep pockets and long view, high conviction and high support level, multiples of them on your cap table, because here's what happens. They pick up the phone and they call their buddies. They talk about it. They brag that they got into the deal. Well, guess what? You let them into the deal because it's a hot deal because you've done the work to make it a hot deal. 
And at that point later on, I thought I was going to have to go out to raise my Series C. One of those investors came back and invited me to do it just a brief half an hour to an hour update to some partners because we're just doing a portfolio review. Four days prior, I learned out it was a pitch meeting. They actually presented a term sheet to me. Shortly after that meeting, they led the Series C. I never went for outside money. Okay. I mean, so you stage these things up. All right. That's kind of the point. Is it easier after you do it the first time? Yeah, it is. Because when I went into Lux Capital at the recommendation of Fred, remember, warm handoff, right? So we went to the warm handoff, a facilitated dialogue. Uh, Peter A. Bear over at Lux said, Fred speaks highly of you. Oh, well, that's great. So now I know the spring's loaded, right? And oh, by the way, my partner, Adam Goldblum, still regrets that he didn't invest in Shockwave when he saw it four years ago. Mm -hmm. Right? <laughs> so nominally, we know you're the real deal. Uh, yeah, I try my best. Great. So that was a willing audience. Great. So seven minutes of a 90-minute meeting set the stage. There's still 83 minutes where you better be able to prove willing. Right. Let's get it real. So it makes it easier. It doesn't do the deal, though. You actually have to prove. OK, as well as I know, Fred, he grilled me on this deal on a veil. He grilled me and he grilled me on Shockwave hard. In fact, Fred saw a gap. His attorneys uh, saw a gap in our IP and suggested you might want to go take a look at that. In fact, we don't want to invest until. I went out and got a license for that IP and I'm, boy, am I happy I did because Shockwave wouldn't be a seven and a half billion dollar market cap company if it didn't, right? Mm -hmm. um, so in a, in a world of, is it here? It is absolutely easier. But I will also say that not only within a company do you need to pay attention to the stages and select investors based on the stage that you're in. When you're, when you're starting a new venture and you're looking for investors to your question around, is it different for hardcore med tech versus telemedicine, if you will, um, the investor list is, is uh, bespoke to the company. It is, it is catered and designed specifically for the company. I went to traditional med tech in the form of one fund for Avail. Didn't really get it. They got it, but they wanted a whole bunch of proof and other things that we weren't ready to do because we were sort of two guys and a, a dog and a parakeet. We didn't have anything else, right? I mean, we had a, a system that was, uh, you know, conceptually interesting, but we it turned out we needed to redesign the hardware. It turns out we needed to redesign the software. It turns out the business model was wrong. So nominally speaking, we didn't have much at the time and no team. Um, that wasn't a fit for MedTech. Uh, Lux Capital jumped in because they saw the vision. Uh, Lux Capital makes big bets on technology and market disruption. Uh, and that's why they bet is on, on the opportunity to make a whole new market in a $200 billion, 50 to 70 year old industry. And that's, that's why they bet in. When I was going to do my Series B, uh, totally different group of investors. I didn't even talk to med tech investors, not one. And in fact, candidly, um, I, I'm, I'm sorry to how this is going to sound to the entrepreneurs that are out there that are struggling to raise money. Um, I was dealing with inbounds. I didn't even finish my slide deck. Is that going raised, back to the whole friendship thing that we were talking about? In the no, whole 
No, it wasn't actually. Um, we raised a series A1 that closed in um, March or so, April, March of, uh, uh, February, March, sorry, uh, of 2020. And we brought in a group called Co2, for those familiar. It's a, uh, a, a, you can call it hedge fund, you can call it crossover fund. I just, frankly, I just think they're a bunch of brilliant investors that will invest in a company somewhat independent of stage. Uh, and they and they make real bets and they're wickedly smart and helpful people. Um, so they invested in that all of a sudden put a spotlight on us. Ooh, Co2's in the deal. Ooh, Lux is in the deal. Okay, that's an interesting one. Then the pandemic happened. So we talked about Lock at the beginning. Okay, mm -hmm. well, um, I'll, I'd rather not have the luck, <laughs> right? I mean, to say the least, look, I mean, I, I'm in healthcare. I'm, I'm, uh, I'd rather have slugged it out than gotten the boost we got um, from the standpoint of humanity. Um, having said that, we got kicked in the pants, right? Um, we, we're, we were stealth at the time the pandemic locked sales reps out of procedure rooms. We were completely stealth. We weren't even trying to launch. We were getting 10 to 15 new inquiries a day into our website that was just a new page with a, give us your email address and ask your question, right? 10 to 15 a day from different vendors. Uh, asking us, where are you? I can't get into my rooms. Can I get, you know, it was one of those deals. And it got to a point where we just said, you know what, we need to rip the bandaid off. So we did. A month later, I started getting inbounds. And these are from multi-billion dollar funds. We love what you're doing. Are you considering a round? You know, we'd love to engage. It was two, three, 10, 15, 25. It just kept going. And I realized to, with the board, hey guys, we need to stomp on the accelerator here and I'm gonna blow through the 15 million we just raised. Uh, let's go out, let's go do something now. So we went out candidly to raise about 50 million bucks and we got a subscription interest to 160 million. Um, so we capped it at 100. And in the middle of all of that, you know, nobody was traveling. So I did the whole thing over Zoom. Um, Literally, you I never. You raised a hundred million dollars over Zoom. I did. Oh yes. God. <laughs> I never met the guys at D1 Capital in person. Uh, I never met the guys at 8VC in person. Um, I knew some of the Co2 guys, no problem, but um, I had met them previously. But I, I never met the other folks. You know, it was just literally looking at a Brady Bunch screen. That was it, <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, I, I didn't finish my slide deck to raise money until after the round was closed. Oh um, that's just, it was the environment, it's how it was. And it was the fact that we already had unbelievably smart, helpful capital around the table. And what I will tell uh, everyone out there, if I had to take a piece of learning, Choose your investors why, interview them as much as you'd interview a co-founder. Don't muck around with that. Money's easy. Don't forget that. There's loads and loads of money out there for solid ideas. Um, you might need some help telling your story. You might need some help tweaking this and that and whatever. That's fine. Telling your story is probably the number one thing that I find I, I can help entrepreneurs with. Um, I sit on a couple of boards because I ended up helping some folks and they said, can you help us raise money? And then we tune some things up and boom, they're raising money. Um, <clears throat> and 
if you choose your investors properly, your investors will work to bring in investors that they would want to invest with. And it just, it just mushrooms, right? It just absolutely mushrooms from there. So when it came time to raise and, and we got all these inbounds, Fred Moles said, hey, you know what? I think Dan Sundheim's D1 Capital would be great for this. Their healthcare team is by a guy called James Rogers. One of the best diligence minds I have seen in this industry. Absolutely fantastic. It turns out that D1 Capital led the last round for Aura's Health, Fred's latest robotics company that he sold to J&J. Lux Capital was in that deal. D1 Capital was, was the, the last round. And D1 invested um, uh, 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 prior to it, uh, it getting acquired. There wasn't even time for a board meeting. It went from investment, there's a board meeting scheduled. Oh, it was acquired before they even got to the first board meeting. And they made two X off of that deal. Um, they, you know, to, as, a, as a beautiful indication of how they view the world, they actually didn't really want to sell. They wanted to hold, they wanted to keep going, but you know what? There was too much return available for other investors. And they said, okay. And they made a ridiculous return, right? On that investment. Um, so it wasn't like I was going cold to day one. The spring was loaded to your earlier, earlier point. Um, but no, I, I never met the guys. Uh, I was literally all over the phone and zoom. Wow. So uh, once again, I think this whole story should be turned into a movie and maybe you can make some money off that too. I mean, <laughs> this whole thing sounds amazing and, and thank you very much for sharing with us, all of us listening in. Um, I think whether it's previous podcasts and the direct questions I've had, or just in general entrepreneurs having their own questions on what to do and what does my future look like if I want to be a serial entrepreneur or even get through my number one, um, the amount of information and anecdotal stories that you've shared with us answered a lot of questions, if not all of them. Um, I, I do want to finally close off with one question, which is once again, an open-ended philosophical question, because I think okay. that would be a nice close. Um, Daniel Hawkins 20 years ago and changed the name to whatever entrepreneur who's listening in right now. You mentioned a couple of times, you know, don't give up during hard times and stuff like that. But just philosophically at this point, medical device entrepreneurs wanting to pursue entrepreneurship, whether it's a napkin idea or join a startup, or, what would you just say to them? And I don't even want to steer it. Like, what would you just say to those people who want to be a med tech entrepreneur? Um, Interesting. Wow. There's, there's so many directions I could go with this. The first one is if you want to do it, um, make sure you know what you're getting yourself into. Not to scare anybody away, but it's, it's a commitment. It's a real deal. Um, find your mentor. That's probably the greatest single line bumper sticker advice I could give you. Mine was Fred Mall. At this point, he's medical device royalty, right? So I had an opportunity, right, to be in a company with medical device royalty. And I learned by osmosis being around them. Um, find your mentor. Uh, have somebody help you with your story. You know, what I, what I find is one of the most common things that keeps people from being able to raise money is an ability to tell their story. Uh, I'm involved with a company right now um, where a, a really, really savvy, brilliant surgeon came up with an idea. 
And it's hard for him to articulate his story in a way that makes it investable. I heard his story and I said, with all respect, I'm gonna play your story back for you. And I gave him his story back and he said, wow. And I said, yeah, but that's what you just told me. But I just told you in a different way. Okay, so now here are the investors I think you ought to go to. Bang, 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 right? We pick up the phone and I tell the story and I introduce him. Ah, something else happens versus the, I'm not sure what you're talking about that he was getting. Uh, work on your story. And I'm by no means the only guy who knows how to do this. Lots of very successful medical device entrepreneurs know how to do this. But uh, work on your story and, and how you tell the story. It needs to be an investable story. Um, heed the advice of those before you. So uh, I went to school on every successful entrepreneur I possibly could from afar as well as close. So uh, I've met, by way of example, I've met Josh McHower a handful of times. Um, when I was doing my, you know, figure out a cool thing to do, one of the ideas I was so excited about was, I think I want to do angioplasty in the nose and here's why. And I came up with all this cool stuff. And then I looked and I found out literally 14 days prior, the first declarant um, IP was published, which means... Josh thought about it like two years prior, right? <laughs> and so I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to school on this guy. So I started to learn what he does. And I watched him. And even if it was from a distance, I learned. Um, watching Fred tell his stories, I learned. Uh, how he raised money, I learned. Fred is relentless on making sure products work well and they're clinically meaningful and no fiddle factor and they create real value. Be relentless on that stuff. And if you feel like you're great at all things, I'm sorry, you're not. Uh, nobody is. Um, one of the greatest things that will serve your effort is to recognize what you're good at, what you're not good at, and make sure you have the ability to understand the difference and get help to fill the gaps. So ho hopefully that helps. And just on the story piece, just my last clarification quickly. When you say help on the story, is it, is it the persona and the ability to actually tell a story? Or are you talking about the person doesn't know if they're a PMA or a 510K in their regulatory path and they actually like- Oh, um, it is more the former than the latter. I am assuming that somebody knows that they're a PMA or a 510K because by the time they're in front of an investor, you really need to know that, right? So go find a consultant to get the answer to that. Or find, if you don't have the money to pay a consultant, you're trying to scrap something together, find a serial entrepreneur and ask them, because I will promise you they're going to have an opinion. They might not be right, but they're going to be able to a whole lot more right than flipping a coin. I can promise you that. Um, no, I'm actually talking about an ability to describe the future you envision in an actionable way that is investable. So, uh, you know, I raised $10 million for a veil. Yes, I had friends, if you will, around it. And it was a friendly environment. I described a vision. I didn't describe what we've done because we hadn't done anything, right? I mean, to be fair, there was a prior effort that, that I took over that had hardware and software and idea. Um, there were lots of reasons why that needed to get fixed, all three of those. And I, and I, I referenced that. But the vision I had I was able to articulate in a way where it rallied the investor mind around, oh, it should work that way. Oh, wait, why doesn't it work that way? 
Oh, I know why, because this guy hasn't done it yet. Yep, I'm gonna give him some money. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. so it's, it's about that ability. And the reality is that that's as it's developed. Um, I'd like to think I'm reasonably good at it now. I utterly sucked at it at the beginning. And I learned from other people. So um, that's, that's what matters is that you gotta, you gotta learn how to do that properly. And if you do it and you test it in front of a few folks and you find you have gaps in your story, you're not done learning yet. You're not done honing your story yet. Get somebody to help you with that and you'll have much better success. Daniel Hawkins, CEO, founder of Avail Med Systems as well as a plethora of other companies that we just learned about. I thank you so much for your time tonight. This was a, an absolutely amazing story. And I usually sign off with saying med tech money, demystifying raising and investing capital. But I think after this most legendary story that you shared with us today, <laughs> I'm not actually gonna use the, the past tense of it. I think we demystified raising and investing capital tonight. So I wanna say thank you very much for all of your insights and stories that you share with us today. Thank you for your time. And um, I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast tonight. Appreciate the opportunity. Take care. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.